Welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Robotics. I'm your host, Nikki Rousseau, CEO and founder of Exaptic, a robotics company based in Melbourne. My guest today is Dr. Heba Kamas. She's the CEO of Contactile, and the tagline on LinkedIn says, which specializes in cutting-edge tactile sensors, robotic dexterity in e-commerce fulfillment, manufacturing, agriculture, health, and space. Heba, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Nikki. Listen, that's quite a tagline you've got there, and we're going to unpack it all of it in the talk today. Um, suffice to say, I was just telling Heba, um, we are now on episode, I think, probably 55 of, of the podcast, round about there, probably give or take. And um, Heba's on been on my um, my watch list for some time now. So I've been I've been stalking her on LinkedIn. So for everyone listening, immediately look her up on LinkedIn and connect with her there as well. Heba, tell us about your journey leading up to being the CEO and co-founder of Contactile. Yeah, so it certainly wasn't the plan. <laughs> Very few things but, are. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so actually ever since kind of finishing my undergraduate degrees, I wanted to be an academic and I started on that, on that journey. Um, and I was in academia for about seven years. And um, during that time, I uh, actually met my, my co-founders, Stephen Redman and Benjamin Shear, And uh, we actually invented something at the university and it kind of, you know, t- still tinkering around doing the research, having fun with all that. And um we were presented with an opportunity to uh, pitch the, the technology to some VCs that were visiting the university. Um, so the, the technology transfer office kind of you know, realized that there may be some potential commercial value to this technology. And so they invited us to pitch. And the VCs were really excited about the technology, but clearly we were coming at it from a very academic um, you know, perspective, and they said, this is really interesting, and we can see that there's a potential, but you haven't done any kind of market research, you don't know who the customers are, you don't know which applications it's going to be useful in, all this kind of stuff. Um, so it was actually them that suggested that we start exploring that and um, maybe apply to an accelerator program. Um, and then it just snowballed from there. Um, you know, when you're presented with an opportunity. We were accepted into one of the um, the best, I think, accelerator programs um, in the country at the time with the CSIRO on Accelerate program um, and, you know, opportunity. So we were doing that for three months. We, we got to, you know, start ex- um, uh, interviewing customers and trying to see exactly where this technology fits into the, to the robotics ecosystem. And it was a perfect opportunity also for impact. So research is wonderful and we can't, you know, progress without it. But really what's missing a lot of the time is that translation. You know, we write papers and very smart people read our papers, but then no one, it doesn't really go any further. The public doesn't ever see it. It's never actually translated into a physical product or something that's used in industry. And so that's always been kind of a big motivator for myself and and the other two co-founders is like, you know, that idea and that goal of, of seeing it actually being used practically in industry. 
Yeah, um, I, yeah, I think you've hit on a very interesting because I've had I've heard this remark from other academia as well that robots are designed in labs and then well what do you do with this now because you know like the the theory and the um you know the academia behind it and these huge brains working out what are you going to do with this and then okay well what now with this robot like what what's the real time application of it? Yeah, it's and and there's a little bit there's a big chasm I think between the research and then actually yeah. translating it into a product. And there I think there needs to be um, better kind of support for that in between space because the researchers tend to be kind of solving twenty year problems. You know how can like for example how do we make robots walk? Right, yeah. but you know we don't maybe need ro- walking robots right now, but we will be needing them in twenty years time. Yeah. And so trying to find that that bridge between what the researchers are working on and what industry actually wants right now is is quite challenging. Um, and it's a lot it's probably the, the the phase where a lot of robotic startups fail. Yeah. Um, is trying to bridge that gap. So how do you kind of stay commercially viable while that future becomes a reality? Yeah, and I, I think um, I, I often look at it and I think a company such as myself, Exaptic, is actually the ideal middle ground for academia and industry because, you know, I deal with a lot of um, with a lot of clients and you can have little market researchers and this is real time where people are going, what are you doing? Like, what's this for? Like, you know, yeah. why did you even think of doing this? Hey, but just take me a step back. What have you got your PhD in? Uh, so my PhD was... Um, it, it's in engineering. I was uh, doing uh, epileptic seizure detection from scalp recordings of brain activity. Oh my goodness, that's, that's <laughs> so interesting. It was, yeah, it was kind of a little bit of machine learning and algorithms and um, signal processing and things like that. All right. So, I mean, this is obviously just a natural evolution then for you. Yeah. So, I actually went, um, so brain signals to uh, heart signals to tactile yeah. neural signals. And then from that project, that was kind of the inspiration for then developing the artificial tactile sensors. Okay, so tell us now, what is contact, uh, contact, uh, contact, 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 <laughs> first time in my life, I've got tongue twisted on my own podcast. What do you do? <laughs> um, so our core technology is tactile sensors. Yep. And our big value proposition is that our sensors can actually measure all of the parameters that are important for manipulation. So there's, you know, in the market, there's pressure sensors and there's force torque sensors, and these are useful in various applications. But if you want to be able to handle things like humans do, you need to be able to measure a whole lot more than that. And our sensors do that. They measure um, 3D force, 3D deflection, um, 3D torque, they measure vibration, they can detect slip, and they can measure friction. So all of these parameters are really important because if you think about it, um, just kind of intuitively, if something is heavy, you need to grip it harder. If something is slippery, you need to grip it harder. If something is rotating in your grasp because the center of mass is is far from where you've grasped it, you need to grip it harder. So we measure everything that you need to know exactly how hard to grip an object without needing to identify what the object is beforehand. So how long have you been going as a company? The company was incorporated uh, mid-2019. So it's just now yeah and give us some case studies of of clients that you're working with real time 
Yep, so uh, we've been working with a prosthetics company um, in New Zealand called Tasker Prosthetics, um, and they're developing kind of the next generation of their product, which is incorporating tactile sensors into the prosthetic hand. And that's really important for prosthetic users because until now, the only way they know that they're holding something securely is by looking at it. And that's obviously very unnatural because, you know, we, we're very multi, yeah. uh, uh, we, you know, uh, we do things in, in parallel. We want to be doing something with our hands over here while looking, you know, our gaze is over here. And so that becomes very um, limiting for someone using a prosthetic. And so their next version of their product will have, uh, hopefully will have tactile sensors embedded into the prosthetic hand. And then they feed that information back to the prosthetic user. It's absolutely fascinating. You know, I, um, the, the robots that I deal with and the remarks that people sometimes make of, you know, why doesn't the robot do this and, uh, you know, make coffee and like to see the articles like the artist guy. But it's, it's actually quite complex because um, Elizabeth Croft came and did a talk at, the, I, I host a meetup group in Melbourne as well. And um, she came and did a talk on, they were doing a study in the grip and how hard, you know, like things we just as human beings, we take for granted. Like if I shake your hand um, and I'm squeezing too hard, I'll see it from a reaction on your face. Hey, like, what are you doing? Back off. Or, you know, there'll be some sort of cue. Listen, you, you're not doing this right. You know, how do you translate this to a robot to understand, okay, now grip harder? Yeah, it's really challenging. And there's lots and lots of layers. Um, yeah. So there's like, you know, the lowest layer, which is, you know, just basic control. Usually when you're trying to handle something, the only thing you need to do is not let it slip. So that's the lowest level of yeah. control. And that's where our sensors kind of, you know, help to do that. Then you've got other layers of control. You've got intention, like, okay, uh, I might not want it to slip, but I know if I grip harder than this threshold, I'm probably going to break it. And so there's a decision point in that process where you're like, okay, I might have to put it down. Because yeah. if I grip any harder, I'm either going to break it or I physically can't, you know, my hand is too weak. So that, and then that's the second layer of control. And then you've got the third layer of control, which is intention, right? So if, if, for example, I'm intending to hand something to you, then I know that up until a point I need to hold on, but then yeah. at some point I need to release because you've taken it and you've picked up the weight of it and, and it's safe in your grasp. Yeah. And all these subtle cues of us. There's so many things. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, you know, I would say it's not very well understood in humans. And so how can we even start to uh, develop these things for robots? It's, it's very exciting. And by exciting, I mean, it's very challenging. Yeah. I, I, I always laugh when people go, yeah, we're designing um, robots to get on, you know, that work with people. I always go, well, why don't we just start with people? You know, people, I don't think we're doing such a great job just working with people. But, you know, <laughs> I like, I just go, okay, like, never mind my remarks on the thing. So how big is your, the market that you're servicing worldwide? And are, like, are you one of, I'm assuming you're one of a few companies, if not the only company in the world doing this? Yeah, there's very few. There's probably only a handful of companies yeah. that are trying to um, solve the dexterity problem in robotics. Um, and yes, there's different approaches from each of each of the competitors. I would say um, the market it's 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 a really hard question actually because the market is potentially mm. any any human labor. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, but obviously, you know, we don't want to replace humans doing jobs because then, you know, we would have a massive unemployment rate. 
Um, so the actual target is more like, um, you know, doing the jobs that are either too dangerous for people to be doing um, or, you know, there's labour shortages in those particular professions and we want to, you know, um, make the people in those jobs more uh, efficient and doing more value-adding tasks rather than the boring, mundane stuff that a robot could do. Um, so, for example, if you think about nursing, yeah. you know, nurses' time is best spent actually face-to-face with the patient doing value-adding tasks there rather than, you know, restocking syringes or cleaning, you know, the toilet, whatever, you know, whatever those other jobs are. So no, how that's- much of that? Yeah, and that's anyway, that's anyway um, dangerous and dirty jobs. Like, why would you want people doing that? Yeah, like there's higher rate of infection and cross-contamination, yeah. all these other, yeah, benefits that, that um, if you could do it robotically, that you, you take out these other problems as well. Yeah. Look, you know, you touch on an interesting thing because like all the stats in the years, I've, I've been doing this for about seven years now and since day one, you know, I've read things about in 2022, like, you know, we're going to have this amount of people displaced with robots. Like it's, it's not how true. And I think a lot of people that have made these predictions, um, you know, they, they're just hoping no one pulls out these stats when they go to another conference and they open it and, and they don't want to be, um, let me just remind you what you said about four years ago of the <laughs> prediction. Like, it's very hard. And I think in terms of people being displaced, this is not an overnight process. People, you know that you're looking, the writing's on the wall. Look at, he has a bit of automation here, but it's not an overnight process. No, it's definitely not. And it's historically, it hasn't happened either. Like, you know, we've had how many industrial revolutions for yeah. <laughs> um, I think um, and each time a new technology comes out it's the same thing oh no the machine is going to take over um, you know all these jobs and uh, it, it is true that there will be jobs being displaced but there'll be creation of new jobs and there'll be that you know that buffer period where there's opportunity to, to reskill into other areas and move into other um, t- jobs so um, yeah I don't think that yeah those comments are well founded um no. just even looking at history it's it's never happened unemployment has not really ever suffered in the way that's predicted when when a new technology or automation comes in so. no and there's actually papers to and proof to suggest that it's the opposite that when you do automate it creates jobs because yeah. people have to maintain it people have to um, upskill maybe into different things i think for the generation coming through of school kids and university kids um there is a sector in the marketplace that they need to be more aware of it but i think they need to be more aware of jobs anyway because jobs things are changing so rapidly in the world that that's right yeah um i i did a um an interview for uh, advanced manufacturing magazine i think it was a few few months ago and they were talking about you know how do we get more uh young people involved and and curious about manufacturing as a career because like if I think, you know, 10 years ago when I thought of manufacturing, I was thinking of, you know, blue overalls, greasy, you, you yeah. know, using you know, a, a spanner and a hammer, like, you know, very kind of manual, um, um, semi-skilled labor. But manufacturing now is is so much more exciting than that. It's working with the latest technologies. Yeah. It's, you know, working with robots and things. And so it's, I think there needs to be a perspective shift and a reassessment of what, jobs in each of these um, industries actually looks like today 
and, and yeah. communicating that with, with people um, who are starting their careers and, and choosing a profession. Well, I suppose, especially the, the engineering um, sector, you know, I, I think I was reading that. I think they're holding their own or they may be losing a few engineers, which is actually quite petrifying for me in Australia because I think, like, if anyone, you don't want to lose your engineers. You know, you want more engineers mm. in the market. Um, and especially um, a subsection, of course, is mechatronics, which I don't – I think it's now being – more widely found in universities i spoke to a guest the other day that when he qualified like 20 odd years mechatronics wasn't an option like you 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 know that didn't exist at universities in australia yeah that's right yeah and and also the the interpretation of a mechatronics degree at different universities is vastly different um so i think even understanding the nuances of you know which end of the spectrum of a mechatronics engineering degree do you want to be on um, and and choosing the, the university that offers that um, that education is is important as well. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned startup land. Like I'm always interested in startup land. <laughs> Going from a lecturer to being thrust in this, h- how did it happen for you? I, I'm sure like there could be good and bad stories about uh, your whole journey there. It's. I mean, it's definitely different yeah Um, but but in in some ways it's very much the same as well so um very early on someone described a startup um to me as an experimental business (laughs) um and so it essentially means that you have a hypothesis that this combination of product customer market and business model is going to be successful that's that's your hypothesis yeah. And the process of actually doing a startup, being in it, is proving that hypothesis. And so, you know, it, and it's, you know, it's a multifaceted experiment because you've got to prove that the customers exist. So that involves doing experiments with customers, finding out are they actually wanting your product or are they actually interested in solving a, a problem? Um, and you need to, you know, uh, do experiments about the market. You know, how big is it actually? Because, you know, you see numbers, statistics all over the place but they're pretty meaningless until you drill down into you know what it means for you and how much of that you can actually capture and then there's experiments about the product you know what features do the customers actually need and you know what is you know a little bit more superfluous and not not necessary and can you build it for the price that you know the cost that you need to spend and can you sell it for the price that, that you're aiming for and does that give you enough profit to be a successful business so it's all these hypotheses around these various things and your task is basically to prove it so. And if you can't prove it, how do you pivot and shift and, and turn it into something that's workable for your, your startup? So the, the idea is it's still research. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's just a very different type of research and the way that you prove things is very different. So you're not sitting in front of a computer and and writing code to run simulations or programming a robot to do something and, and, you know, measuring things, you're actually talking. It's a lot of talking, yeah. <laughs> talking to customers and talking to um, key opinion leaders, experts in various industries. Um, yeah. Lots and lots of talking. So you mentioned you went on a startup program. Talk, give us a little bit of the background there. Yeah. So we've now been on a few. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but the first one, yeah, was the CSR on Accelerate program. That was really intense also because it was at the very early stages of the startup. I, we were all still doing our full-time jobs mm-hmm. and then also um, doing this full-time program, which was like a 12-week 
um, yeah, very heavy, heavy deep dive. Yeah, it was um, like someone said it, and I thought, oh my god, that's spot on. Drinking from a fire hydrant, yeah, just bombarded with so much information and just trying to absorb it all. Is yeah, um, but it was it was really interesting. Obviously, it was the first time we were being exposed to the business side of things and and the idea of actually you know talking to customers. <laughs> um, so it was an extremely valuable uh, experience. Um, and then, so that was in early 2019. Last year, we also did um, the UNSW Founders 10X program. Mm-hmm. So having already been exposed to one program and done, you know, continued kind of working on, on those um, concepts that we learned there, and then having more of an idea of what we need to focus on when we started that program, um, that gave us much more direction and focus and, uh, and kind of more explicit goals that we wanted to achieve for that one. Um, and so that was end of 2020, and we've just now finished six months uh, incubation at Cicada Innovations, um, which is uh, a deep tech incubator in Sydney, um, and that was di- very different because it was one-on-one mentoring, and it was um, it's much, much more targeted again. So it's, yeah, each, each of those I think was perfectly um, suitable for the kind of stage that we were at at the time that we did it um and so yeah it helped us to kind of focus on the things that were important to us at that moment um yeah and yeah coming from academia and not really having an idea of you know what tools do we use what what's a business model canvas uh what's you know yeah. how do we how do we um articulate a value proposition to customers and you know just it's little things like that that you intuitively might have an idea, but seeing it in writing and seeing that actually this is a proven way of doing things, um, that, you know, a tool that everybody uses to, to articulate these things is, is really helpful. It's, it's crucial. You know what? I've been going for seven years now and in my fourth year, I went on a, um, on a program. I got into a Collider program up in QUT for three months and I was in Brisbane commuting between Melbourne and exactly like a deep dive. Now you think you know all these things and I mean superficially I did know all the things and I was possibly doing all the things but to have a really targeted someone um, work with you and Alan Jones that I've just interviewed on my podcast it was my um, entrepreneur in residence and mm-hmm. um the first thing he said to me is you need to get an e-commerce play on your on your website. Like I think that was week one. He said to me, just sit down and this is what you need. Because I was already up and running and trading, but still very much in startup land. And just to your remark of having three different programs, you would have three di- very different people leading the program with very different experiences again. And I imagine you found it like that. Yeah, that's right. And very different networks as well. So yeah. and and that's actually one of the the things that I've taken away from all three programs is just, yeah, the network that is opened up to you by these people who have so many connections um, and the ability to just, you know, well, nobody picks up a phone anymore, but email, you know, someone who you've been mentored by and say, Hey, um, I'm having this problem. Do you know anyone with these, you know, expertise or these connections or these experiences that you can connect me with? It is possibly the, the most powerful thing um, that, that you can have at your disposal because, you know, you're, if not immediately, you know, just two steps, uh, you know, two degrees of separation away from talking to the person that you need to talk to. 
That so I, I couldn't agree with you more. And that was one of the prime motivations for me to do the starter program that I did was the connections because yeah. these people well and truly have their pulse on anything. And it will take us years to, I don't even think exactly. if we're lucky enough to cultivate these connections ourselves, because like, you know, why would we like that? Look at you, who you, but these guys have paid all these guys and women under the same banner here have paid their dues. They've spent many years in the industry doing the work that they've done. And um, yeah. And I, and, and I'd imagine for you, you would have had to buy for a position. It's not just handed on to you. You'd be competing with other companies to get into. Yeah. The yeah. All of, yeah. All it's these quite a, yeah. 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 So, I mean, congratulations on getting into three. Like that's, that is really, very good. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it, sh- it shows that someone thinks we're onto something. <laughs> no, is- no, definitely you are. No, definitely you are. The only other observation I have about starter programs, of course, like they're invaluable, but they're very time consuming because yeah, you have yeah. to do, your, you know, you, this is not a picnic. Nothing's been given to you. It's very hard work. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, the first one was, as I said, we were doing that while doing full-time jobs. Um, yeah. And that one was back, back. Remember when we could travel? Um, <laughs> that one was actually every two weeks was in yeah. a different city in Australia. Yeah. So there was travel involved. We'd be Gosh. there face to face for like two days for an, an intense workshop. And then there'd be homework to do during the, the, the two weeks and things like that. So it was really full on. I remember flying um, basically a red eye back from Perth and uh, arriving at 8 a.m. and delivering a three-hour lecture from 9 a.m. So, like, it was really full-on, yeah. It's, this is not what you want to be repeating, and don't tell your students you did this, because they were going, we have paid for excellence here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think my delirium probably added value to the lecture. But, um, yeah. So, um, in terms of who went on it, did you go and your partners, or was it just you more as a CEO, or how did you divvy it up? No, we, yeah, we all went as, as much as possible. Um, so one of our co-founders is actually um, relocated to Ireland. Okay. So uh, it was obviously challenging for him to be involved. But even he, um, uh, we, he, he had planned a trip to Sydney. Um, and so when he was, uh, you know, physically in the country, he was involved in the program as well. Um, and there was obviously the homework that we did uh, in the background that, that he was involved in, but um, physical attendance was challenging. Yeah. So your advice to anyone thinking about this is go for it. Yeah. I mean, you, you need to be probably a little bit particular about which program to, yeah. to go for um, and the benefits of each um, and probably look at the fine print as well, because every program has different um, terms associated with your uh participation so just be wary that it's then i don't think actually any of them are free no there's a, there's a yeah. there's a quid pro quo going on there's exactly. a bit of... so just, yeah so just weigh up the the you know the value that you get out of it versus what what you're giving up as well yeah. i think it's important to realize that there's yeah there's always yeah, they, nothing's free yeah. yeah there's a trade-off as with all things yeah. so you have got an absolutely fabulous newsletter that you started producing talk to us how this all happened um, so the newsletter was, try- I was trying to get um, basically an audience, right? So eyes eyes on social media, eyes on content. Um, obviously, the more people are aware of you, the more they talk in, you know, random circles and you reach people that you, you know, didn't even think that you needed to reach. So 
Um, and I found that to be the case because, you know, I get inquiries. I'm like, how did you hear about us? I'm like, oh, someone mentioned that they saw something in, in a newsletter or on LinkedIn or something. And, and then I looked it up and I thought it was interesting. So, yeah, it's just really good to be uh, visible, yeah. right? Um, so I started that. Um, it's actually extremely time-consuming to put together a newsletter. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> uh, anyone thinking of it, it's, uh, it is challenging. Um, but I found actually that it's... Um, I being forced, not forced, but be, putting together the newsletter actually helps me a lot as well because I become obviously more aware of what's going on in robotics across, mm-hmm. you know, all, all different um, industries uh, and, and in research. So it's um, it's benefited me personally. And then, you know, it's always nice when someone like you, Nikki, thank you, <laughs> says, oh, I read your newsletter. That was really interesting. Or randomly I'll get into an elevator with someone and they're like, oh, <laughs> I know you. Every genius like, oh, thanks, cool. Um, yeah, it's sometimes a little bit hard to know whether it is reaching people, but then there's those random, um, it, yeah, incidents where you realize, oh no, it is, it is reaching people, and people do appreciate having that information in one consolidated place. Yeah, listen, and you know what? Like, I'm doing it. Like, there's another woman in Australia doing it, Anna Alvin, and she's also, and I think you must connect with her, and there's a lot of um, benefit for both of you, so Mm -hmm. I'll give you her contact details. And I think the thing is, um, you can get lots of information from many sources. There's there's never enough sources or or places where you can get your information from. So, now carry on, Heba, because you, um, you know, as you say, it's, I think I was listening to a guy who's now, man, he makes gazillions of dollars on his YouTube channel, but the first hundred, nothing, mm. nada. And then after the hundredth um, episode he put out on YouTube, it just went like exponentially. Yeah. It just, it just took off. And I think the, the more important for you, as you've already touched on, is it makes you um, very aware of what's going on in robotics because there's a lot going on all the time and things change very quickly. Yeah, that's right. You know, so you've got your finger literally on the pulse and um, I look at all the newsletters and I go, you're doing all the work for me, so thank you for doing it because I know (laughs) it's hard. I briefly considered it and then I thought, no, I'm not doing this as well. Thank you very much, not for me. You can do it. Yeah, you would think it it definitely isn't an easy job. Um, A lot of people think oh you're just reusing content that's already out there but um I actually do read the articles <laughs> before, yeah. I, before I choose to include them uh and yeah and no I you think- have to yeah yeah be a little bit discerning about what you're pumping out there because yeah. not everything I, I I look at it as well and go I don't think this needs to be shared with the world thank you you yeah. can stay there so speaking of news like articles I read one or I saw one that was um staring into robots and how unsettling is talk a little bit about this yeah, so this is, a, you know, I'm not an expert in this field at yeah. all, but this was a really interesting one to me, and I've seen some similar articles um, before, um, but it's all about how humans interact with robots and how differently they can interact with robots depending on the form of the robot. Yeah. I find this absolutely fascinating because it has huge implications for how we design our robots for different um, uses. Um, so this particular one was saying that there was a study and um, – people actually, uh, their their decision-making process actually gets delayed by looking into a robot's eyes. So we're talking about a robot that looks, you know, somewhat human and has eyes. And when you look at them, your decision-making process is actually delayed. Um, So obviously, you know, there are some scenarios where that might be useful and there are other scenarios where you don't want people to be distracted 
um, and you want them to be able to still make you know fast fast decisions and so it you know it really does highlight the the importance of choosing the form of the robot for your particular purpose oh now, there's a, yeah there's a lot of sorry there, there's a lot of um, work being done around that because as you say um like even the humanoids like how people react to like when you see a robot, that humanoid for our listeners out there, it's something that looks like it's got arms or potentially legs. It's normally got a head um, and it may have eyes, not always, but it, it, it's got a human form. That's what we yeah. refer to as a humanoid robot. Yeah. And there's, uh, and there's even more interesting stuff about that and the ethical questions around it. Mm. So there was another study that showed that um, a robot that looks human is judged more harshly, like if, if from a moral perspective, if it makes a decision that is immoral, the judgment is much harsher compared to if it was a box or something that made the exact same decision. And so this raises a lot of ethical questions around, you know, does this mean that if a, a Porsche autonomous vehicle had an accident compared to a, I don't know, uh, what's a what's a not very good car like a Toyota? Oh no, they're great. They're just not expensive. Great. I have, yeah, I have lots. Of, yeah, I have a Toyota. Um, you know, like a a, a more entry level kind yeah. of cheaper car uh, made had made the same mistake and had a, a, a car crash. Would the judgment be different because the form of the cars is different? Um, yeah, and you know that's just a very basic example, but there's there's a lot of ethical considerations. So it's, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. It's yeah. a minefield. I, one of my previous um, guests, Professor Rob Sparrow um, at Monash University is a robotics ethicist. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, to our audience, it's well worth listening to his episode. It's way back. It was one of my first ones I did, but very interesting because I think one of, um, we actually covered one of the uh, YouTube videos is this robot being um, beaten by people like and yeah. and the motions that it comes up and, and should you be doing this and you know like what are you doing and this this is it no don't hurt the robot and I was telling her that one of my um, functions on I went to I have this little sandbot robot that's very cute it's got little arms here that's too cute little flashing lights everything and it was on a dance floor and people I was at a function and the women were dancing around it and you know really engaging with it and I think one of the the male guests they just went listen this robot has had enough attention and he swooped onto the um, dance floor and moved it but like like quite forcibly but like you know he was just slightly aggressive and all the women like they with it like they all as one turned on him and don't hurt Sally because they don't hurt Sally (laughs) for the evening don't hurt Sally now this is this is a bonding exercise from within an hour and a half because I hadn't seen the robot before so within an hour and a half these women had bonded with this robot to the extent that it brought out their maternalistic um, mm-hmm. you know feelings of, of and protection of don't hurt the robot like humans are very interesting yes absolutely yeah and and there's all sorts of other questions around you know should robots be gendered yeah, yeah what does that mean for you know uh, potentially um, you know gendered stereotypes and and perpetuating these gender stereotypes um should for example robotic pets um be allowed to be used in uh in aged care you know because particularly in aged care you might have a high incidence of dementia and things like that and is it fair to you know it's almost like 
I don't want to use, yeah, it's almost like tricking these people, these vulnerable people into believing that this is a real, you know, animal in well, some cases. And so there's an ethical question about, you know, is that, is yeah. that okay or not? <laughs> there's well, there's you, all sorts of interesting ethical questions. Yeah. yeah, you know, para the seal, the the seal that they yeah, use with yeah. dementia patients. So for the audience, if you don't know what para is, it's a, it's a lookalike robot that literally looks like a seal. And you can, um, it's very, very cute. It's got five trigger points where expression can be raised and its nose can twitch and it can make noises. And um, it's used actually very successfully with patients with dementia. Um, So Professor Wendy Moyle was also one of my previous guests and she specializes in this area with this um, this, uh, uh, robot. And look, for me, I'm going, if a robot is useful and it's going to give someone comfort, why wouldn't you do it? Like to me, it's a no brainer. Like, Yeah. you know, you yeah. have to do the cost benefit analysis. If it's providing real value and improvement in either um, uh, quality of life or or mental stimulation or whatever it is, yeah, then, yeah, yeah. No, I, look, I, I see, I see their uses with it. I haven't really thought of the tricking it because I don't think if yeah, that hasn't even come up in my mind that you're tricking someone. I just look at it and go, well, they, they're getting comfort from it. That That's the higher priority than tricking is the comfort that they're getting from it. So, yeah. so talking about robotics in Australia, like what, what do you see is our future? What do you think our state of play where we are at the moment? What should we be doing differently in this space? Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting question. I don't really think I have the answer, it's, which is unfortunate because it's easy to point at problems and not come up with solutions. But um, I think something that's probably missing is, you know, again, we've got all this amazing research. Um, we have obviously a lot of use for robots, but there seems to be a little bit of a slowness to our adoption of new technology um, and, and also investment into new technology as well. Whether that be government or um, or a private investment or, or whatnot, um, there seems to be obviously this you know higher um, aversion to risk, um, and it's really forcing I think a lot of companies to look overseas for investment and move overseas, and so it's kind of sad that you know something that was born here needs to move overseas to get the funding it needs so that it can be implemented back in Australia by Australians. So, yeah, there's there's something missing there, and, and I'm not sure how it can be solved, but, um, yeah. Look, I think it's um, it's probably, probably several levels of, um, number one, you know, once you've got this product that you think out there, getting the investors fully on board to understand the capability. And I mean, I go guys to government level as well as much, how much money are they? This is my opinion, audience, like, please, this is just what I think. I think the audience, the government should just be giving more money in this, in this space, because I think it's an obvious that um, I think Australia, number one, we are a little bit behind, not a little bit, probably a little bit more than a little, the rest of the world in terms of the space. And you I think something that's come up with COVID is we're not a sovereign nation. So um, all these robots, automation, all these things that we're developing here, to me, it's it's an absolute no-brainer that it should be kept here. And I agree with your um, analysis that companies with really good ideas are forced to go overseas to get funding. 
and then it's very hard to bring it back to Australia yeah. because then that IP actually doesn't belong here anymore because obviously the investors, it, it's now offshore. It's, it's not an Australian product anymore. So um, we do welcome the audience. If you've got any bright and brilliant suggestions of how we're going to solve this, please do contact us. You can invest in both our companies as a start. Heba, <laughs> <laughs> tell me seriously, are you, are you looking for investors? Are you raising more money? How is it going on the company side? Yeah, we, so there's, there's a couple of things. It is, it is all about money, unfortunately, but um, yeah, one is yeah, investment and the other is um, projects, like pilot projects with companies that actually want to use our technology. Um, so the challenge with both of those is investors are very risk averse in Australia. So we, we're having to broaden our, our net to overseas potentially. And for pilot projects, again, you know, customers in Australia are again risk averse because, well, this is something I, d- I don't know anything about this technology. You know, um, it's very risky. You know, I need to, I'm um, uh, accountable to my customers. So, you know, um, they, they don't want to take that chance. Um, but if, yeah, if anybody knows any investors or, or potential users of technology like ours that we can talk to and, and start to build um, potentially a collaboration with, that would be amazing. Um, but those are, yeah, those are our two key priorities at the moment is to secure yeah, a pilot project where we can actually demonstrate the sensors in a functional system that um, is deployed in a real uh, scenario. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, and I, either raising the money through that project or, or through investment. Listen, I, I think what you're doing is amazing and I can see real-time application and how it would make differences in people's lives, um, especially with people with limbs, um, that they don't have limbs, that they need, you know, new hands or new arm or whatever. Um, so again, to our audience, if anyone's out there listening and they're interested in investment, please do contact Hebo for more information. Um, I'm sure she'll jump on the bandwagon and do a Zoom meeting immediately, regardless that we're still in lockdown in Melbourne and Sydney, respectively. Heba, any closing remarks that you'd like to leave our audience with? Um, Number one, can I leave your your email address, contact details for them to find you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, The the one thing I would like to say probably is, is related to something personally that um, that I've found very unfortunate. And um, so we're always looking for um, bright and talented engineering interns. And I must say, I've been very upset to not get a lot of uh, inquiries from females. And so if there are any um, engineering interns out, or, or people you know, studying engineering that need to complete an internship, um, we're always looking for interns, and if if you are female, I highly encourage you to um, to get in touch because it's been quite disappointing to to see how few female engineers have uh, actually you know put their names forward to us. Um, yeah. Do, do you think it's a twofold problem? Just the amount of engineer female engineers that there are, like. Yeah, it's it's really uh, and particularly in some of the areas that where you know we need um, interns in. So we're looking at things like mechanical, electrical, and and software engineering. Um, and I think yeah, electrical. I think I got a stat from one of the universities, and the number of female students that they had in electrical engineering was something like eleven percent. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, um, not, not so good. it was really low. Um, yeah, so that's why I'm, you know, taking this opportunity. If that is, if you are one of those eleven percent, get in touch because we, we'd really like to to talk to you and, and give you a good experience. Yeah, fabulous. Thank you for that, Heather. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been really interesting talking to you. Um, please do uh, uh, follow her on her newsletter as well. Um, sign up so that you can get regular updates on what's happening in the robotics across the world. And um, I'll put uh, Heather's contact details. And to our audience, thank you for joining me again for another episode of Let's Talk Robotics. Um, please join me next week. And if you've got any value out of this um, podcast and feel the need to, you may donate. I give you my blessing. Go forth and donate to keep it going. So have a fantastic day and chat to you soon. Thank you. Thank you.